On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm very honored to have a very special guest. I have been looking forward to this interview for some time. Is Greg McEwen? How are you today, Lori? I'm really good, and thank you so much for having me. The beautiful thing about what you're doing, you're you have such an, a unique way of stating the obvious in your books, Essentialism and Effortless. And when I first listened to your Effortless book by Audio. I was so intrigued and I immediately said, I would really enjoy speaking to you and kind of diving into your brain and understanding how this, even this whole journey began. Could you speak to us about what is essentialism and how did you fall into even this path of searching for such a thing? Well, a lot of my learning has been through failure and, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the many failures that led me down this path was, I'd received an email from my manager at the time that said, look, Friday between 1 and 2 p.m. would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because, <laughs> because I, need her, uh, I need you to be at this client meeting. And Friday came along, we're in the hospital, um, but instead, our daughter's just been born in the early hours. Uh, and instead of being focused on that clearly essential uh, moment, I've got my laptop out, my phone out, I'm trying to do it all, I'm trying to keep everyone happy. And then, in addition to that, I, you know, to my shame, I go to this meeting. Uh, and even afterwards, my manager said, well, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. Uh, but the look on their faces didn't seem to evince that sort of respect. And, and even if it had, it's clear that I'd made a fool's bargain. Uh, and what I learned from that was if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Uh, and, and it set me on this journey of researching and trying to understand why it is that we do what we do, uh, why it is that we prioritize the way we do, often um, letting the non-essential things uh, be more in charge than the essential things in our lives. And so that's what essentialism really grew out of. Uh, I found that there was a, a predictable um, pattern uh, for how we can escape this undisciplined pursuit of more. Um, it's the disciplined pursuit of less or less, but better. And that means exploring what's essential, eliminating what's not, uh, but then also making it as effortless as possible to do the things that matter most. Uh, and that's really, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's really what this new book effortless is really focused on. Uh, is is making it a bit easier. That's some of the context for how we get to be here today. Oh, that's there's so much there I could unpack with you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, I have three grown children myself and my husband, and we really reverted as the children grew up, moved to minimalism. So it's a very simplest thing, you know, simplistic, just getting down to the essential, even just the physical things around us, but much less your time and effortless movement and through your day i think it's just so important and so many people get lost and they actually can lose their health because of it and that's why i think i resounded so well with you so how do we even begin to understand what is essential because it just seems like an overwhelming task to think about it yeah i mean i i think that there's i mean one thing that everybody can do immediately uh is they can 
they can sort of put a line in the sand and say, okay, I'm going to protect the asset. Uh, one of my uh, friends, an entrepreneur, uh, a Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year award recipient, um, he set up one of the first for-profit microloan businesses in the world. I mean, it was a tremendous success. He's traveling all over the world, and without really recognizing it, and certainly without meaning to, he started uh, wearing himself out, burning himself out, uh, and and it got to the point where he said, one day I, I was just asleep and I just, it was like a, a, I heard a, a gunshot go off and I woke up, sat up in bed, my wife's still asleep, all my children are still asleep. And I'm like, oh, that's just weird, must've been a dream. It happens again a few nights later, then a few days after that, it's happening in the middle of the day. He's just walking along and it happens. He's like, okay, I'm gonna go get some medical you know, assistance with this, goes to the doctor, they run a series of tests. I mean, there's more than one thing going on, but one of the main things that was going on was this is total burnout and fatigue. And so the doctor said, look, you're just going to have to take a serious break. Like you, you were going to need to not be focused on the business. You're going to need to really, uh, and he's, he said as the sort of quintessential overachiever, he said, I can do this in two weeks. You know, I can, I can, I can rejuvenate myself if I just go this intensely enough. And he went home and he slept a lot more. And he, he was surprised by how much he could sleep, 16 hours a day, trying to catch up. Uh, and, and after two weeks, he just crawls back to the doctor's chair, get it, we're going to make big changes. And he had the, the, the what was sort of heartbreaking for him, the, the job of quitting, well, not quitting, but really stepping aside as the CEO of his business. And he's like, this is not how I meant to go out. This is not how it was supposed to be. It took him two or three years worth of recovery. And so this isn't at all how he wanted to go out, but he learned from this multi-recovery when the vital importance of protecting the asset, which is him, which is you, which is me. I mean, it's each of us. We are the only asset through which we can make any other contribution in our lives, to our families, to our work, to the community. Anything else we think is important always has to begin with protecting the asset. And so I could offer perhaps one rule for protecting the asset, which is a good test each day. And it's just this, it's just don't do more today than you can recover from today. And, and if not that, don't do more this week then you can recover from this week and so on. Because if you do more than you can recover from repeatedly, the result is really clear foregone conclusion. Uh, with a high probability rate, you will eventually be burned out. And lots of people listening to me like my guest will be burned out and not even know they're burned out. Uh, and so you've got to try and test this every day so that over time you have a sustainable approach to the, the contribution you're trying to make. I can uh, relate to that very well. So, you know, as a physician, we have one of the highest suicide rates of any profession. And especially if you're a woman as a physician and children, I went to medical school, my kids were five, three and 10 mm. months old. And then I was active duty Air Force and my husband was active duty. Wow. So um, the problem was, wow. you know, you just think you have to do everything because everything you think is important and you have patient lives and your kids and your family. And it's really hard, but it over time you you're forced to either say no or quit because you can't, you just can't sustain it. And it's such an important thing about, you know, taking care of ourselves as healers, as physicians and others who are 
doing this. And we also launched, I just launched our first, uh, about a year and a half ago, a, a national telemedicine practice about lifestyle mm -hmm. medicine and helping patients achieve basically what we're talking about. And that can be a tad overwhelming as well, but it's going well, but it's people are seeking this so dramatically in their lives. They just don't know where to start. And so is there one area that you've seen? And I, there's so many stories in your book too, about such as your friend, which is mm. really, it was quite compelling to listen to you describe that. Was there one area that you found that it's kind of an easy win for people to, like you also speak of starting small, kind of like BJ Fogg is another, a good friend of mine. And I just really enjoy his work. Is there any area that you would recommend someone to maybe start to understand how this can be multiplied in their lives and be very successful? Well, I think in addition to sort of protecting the asset and that rule, if you sort of say that's number one, I would say number two is, is maybe if I put it as a rule, it would be stop lying about being able to do it all. Mm. Um, because that's the, I mean, underneath the non-essentialist's curse is something that just isn't true. The idea that one can do it all. And then what follows that as an overachiever, as someone who's part of hardworking, intelligent, talented group of people, is that you think to prove that you can. Mm -hmm. So now you've set up an impossibility, and then your own sort of uh, you know, desire to win makes you say, well, I've got to then force this. I've got to go and sacrifice everything. And if I can, then I'll, I'll get everything I want. And it's all of this premise is, 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 is this false uh, a set of assumptions. So mm -hmm. instead, we want a different way of winning. Let's say the acronym WIN, you know, what's important now? Mm -hmm. Now that would be maybe a second specific thing people can do immediately to become more of an essentialist is to say, if there's only, like, what's the most important thing I need to do today? Mm -hmm. so, so of course we all have to-do lists that are long. And often they're longer by the end of the day than they were at the beginning. And the risk is that we let those kinds of reactive, endlessly long lists, or even worse, living in our inbox, is it governing how we use our time. It's also another you know, potentially very reactive way of making decisions. Instead of that, every day, you, you, you know this, if somebody's in the hospital, there's often there'll be a, a whiteboard somewhere in the room and it will say okay goal for today mm. uh, the goal for today might be to get out of bed you know might be maybe to walk down the hall like there's some incremental single focus for the day it doesn't mean nothing else matters but it changes the orientation of your day if you actually take even a moment to really ask that question and so i have a friend who oh it's a friend now who uh, started asking this question every day. Uh, she's in England, uh, and she was she was you know doing way too much. She owns her own business. She's uh, and she she started asking what's what's the most important thing I need to do today. First, it was questions to do with her, answers to do with her business. Mm -hmm. Secondly, over time, it became protect the asset type answers. I'm not sleeping enough. I need to sleep more, and so on. Yeah. So the the answers evolved, even though the question was the same. And then one day, she gets a call from her dad says oh you you know it's no, nothing to worry about but your mom's in the hospital again nothing serious just keeping you in the loop you've got way too much on 
to, to, to worry about this. Well, when she asked the question that day, she knew what was essential. She knew the answer clearly. She said it was like time stood still. The, the, she knows what the weather was like outside exactly where she was. She knew what she needed to do was get to the hospital. That's a two hour drive there. So it's really committing you know, the majority of her day to this. She makes the drive, she gets there, she meets her mum. I love you, mom. I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I love you too. They have this moment. Within an hour of the conversation, her mother had fallen into a coma, never recovered. And a week later, she had the unfortunate job of turning off the life support, support machine. But this is all to say, I mean, the reason I know the story is that she then wrote to me to say, well, if I hadn't been an essentialist, I would have made a different trade-off. And I, I, I would have had a very different experience and, and a regret. And so... To me, that's what I would say is maybe number two specific practical thing you could do right now to become an essentialist is to ask that question every day. The answers will change, but it will orient your life back to the things that are most important. Yeah, and I, I think getting back to protecting the asset, I, I really, because I literally talk to thousands of patients a year, and the one thing that I find is that they almost feel like they can't, like they're not worthy almost, or they, to, to protect their asset is going to harm others in some weird, bizarre way they've twisted in their mind. You know, like I'm always saying, you have to take care of yourself in order to be present to take care of others. And they really struggle with that concept and the being okay with protecting the asset, giving yourself this white space Mission. in your life. Yes. Maybe that's it. And so how do you, would you give any suggestions or thoughts? Maybe this is, this will be my therapy session. <laughs> I'm going to learn some more here other the <laughs> patients is how do I, or how would someone in their own mind, because this, I always tell people this three pound mass in your head is really critical for just everything in life. We can conquer our thinking. Right. I really feel we can conquer so much. Um, is there any way you can kind of mm turn off that internal dialogue that's really fighting, you know, making these better choices um, and, and protecting the asset, which is, is so crucial. Well, I think that, I think that one thing that helps if you, if you extend what we just talked about with the idea of, you know, what's the most important thing I need to do today. Um, as, as the answer comes, sometimes I need to, I need to be well rested so that I can, achieve this other objective. I'll give you an example in my life from yesterday. So I was, I was stuck in New Jersey because of Storm Ida. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was sort of doing my, my plan for the day, right? Like, okay, what's the most essential thing today? Uh, and it was a non-trivial goal and not even obvious how it could be achieved, but it is to get home safely uh, and well-rested. And that was, that was the goal. That was the intent for the day. And, and then I did something extra, which I would recommend to people. It's, it's then say, look, why does it matter? Why does that matter so much? If you're saying that's an important thing, well, why? And so you're sort of forcing yourself to go a little deeper in your analysis and tap into something, um, you know, let's say not just the intellectual side, but like mentally it's like into into your heart it's like why does this matter well it matters because uh because this is the only way that well i actually wrote down a few whys i went like deeper and deeper and i remember getting to a point where i thought if i don't rest i'm just gonna miss everything that matters today i'm gonna miss 
the 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 experience of being back with my family. I'm going to miss, you know, enjoying the experience and journey. And it helped me going deeper in the wise. Helped um, me link into uh, the the clear yes, the clear you know the why I'm doing this, the why rest is important. Uh, and and I actually came away from that little exercise with this commitment to try and make up a hundred hours of sleep between now and the end of the year. And I thought that was, that that was quite spontaneous insight that came as I went through this process of what's important, what's the most important thing, but why, why, why? And so I would encourage people to do that because once you get clear enough on what is important and why it's important to you, you start to be um, more smilingly, like you, you can say no with a smile unapologetically. This yeah. is the thing. And I know why it matters. So I'm not doing it. I'm not trying to rest more because I'm selfish. That's obviously, I, mean, I know of almost nobody in the group of people who would be listening to this conversation who actually would rest as a result of being selfish. But clearly lots of people think it is in some way selfish. Uh, and, and so if you can challenge that mindset by articulating why does that matter and then the next you look at your answer well why does that answer matter look at that answer why does that matter if you do that just two or three whys you've got something substantial and and even in the last 24 hours it is genuinely affected the trade-offs i have made I've slept for hours on the plane i wouldn't normally do that i've slept uh, you know, longer today than I normally would have done because I, I, I am connected to the why of the activity. That's, that's very good. And I certainly use that when patients, because we speak a lot about nutrition and sleep, as I really feel if I can get these two foundational events in their lives pretty well honed in, it's like mm -hmm. giving them the lottery. It's like, wait, I didn't know I could feel so good. I'm like, yes, yes, you can. Let's keep going. <laughs> but we do, yes. we drill down to, they like, they originally come like, I want to lose 20 pounds. I'm like, well, why do you want to lose 20 pounds? And you can drill down. One of the ones that really struck to me one day, a patient said, you know, I want to lose this hundred pounds so I can fly to Norway and see my family and comfortably and not be embarrassed on a plane. And I just, it really struck me there's so many of those events that you share with patients in those journeys. It's the why is so important. Like Simon Sinek, I love that, that book. Why <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, and 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 if and and even that answer that they that they gave, it, it's sort of you know this multiple whys. You know that's oh. a, that's a really powerful answer. I'm not. I'm, I'm, that's concrete sure. and strong. And I wonder just even the why beneath it, because eventually you tap into well, the why of that is because is because family is essential to me, because the, uh, the relationships really matter, because I matter and how I feel about myself matters. It's you get into these, you, you end in, inevitably, as you go deeper and deeper, get into sort of what we could say sort of, um, well, Simon, now that you mentioned it, would, would probably say infinite, an infinite why, but, but like an eternal why, something deep yeah. that you go, no, that is a value. And if I don't, therefore, if I don't do this up here, if I don't sleep, if I don't do the nutrition, I am violating something deep. Mm. And that's the disconnect that I think a lot of people have. It's, oh, it's nice to have, sure, sure, I'm supposed to do that, yeah, for me. And it's like, no, no, there's, there are deeper things you're violating when you don't do that. Mm. And by reconnecting it to the deeper why, you, you, uh, I think you have, it gives you courage and conviction and it gives you 
uh, like determination. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make change. Absolutely. So you're basically you're aligning your behaviors with your principles and beliefs, which I think will help with depression and anxiety that people are, are bubbling up within people because they don't sit time, have, sit down and think about things and about their choices and things. Um, but it was funny, I, I was asked to speak to a group in Pakistan and you know it would have been a great opportunity, but I, I was like, yes. And then I, your book and you came and was like, <laughs> wait a minute, Lori, is this essential? <laughs> yes. Actually, no, it's not. And so I said, no. And I said, you know, there may be some other folks that might be as good mm. and as interested. So, um, but it, it really was helpful because I, I think as, as moms, as women, we tend to want to be saying yes more and more than we should. And um, it's certainly an art to it. But um, I, I really kind of want to get to this, this helpless component. Um, you, you really touched upon it as basically, you know, we, when we turn over our choices, we, you said you just kind of forget how to choose and it you become helpless. And it reminded me of a psychology term, learned helplessness, that you know you deal with a stressful situation, you just learn to accept them, whether even if an opportunity opens up that could change it, is how do we pull ourselves out of this kind of helpless scenario where we feel like it's almost like we're always being done too, like people control our lives, our agenda. Have you found, is it getting back to just simply asking those questions that we talked about earlier, or is there some type of activities or something we can do to kind of learn how to gain back the ability to the skill of making a choice saying we have a choice <laughs> yes i mean i think that i think that it it grows out of the idea i mean conceptually uh, philosophically is that you can't not choose right that 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 you you can say oh, I, i'm i'm i don't want to make a decision about that well that's a decision you like you, you Choice is inevitable. Uh, you, you can you can forget that you have the ability to choose. You could, to, but you can't give it away. Uh, it can't be taken away. Uh, you will choose. And another way of saying that, in sort of slightly maybe more essentialist language, is that is that everything is a trade off. You are making trade offs every time you choose. Yeah. So so once you once you sort of recognize that. I think, I think, and maybe I would describe this as a third thing you can do you know, right now to become more of an essentialist. And, and it's that you, is that you negotiate trade-offs. You take that personal clarity about what's important to you and so on and why, and then you, you need to develop skills, the courage too, but the skills to be able to negotiate that with others, to at least raise the conversation with other people, to advocate for yourself, for that essential thing, uh, might be a more precise way of saying it. Uh, and, and a lot of people are kept back from discussing trade-offs because they think that life is, is, it's like there's two options. You can give a polite yes or a rude no. And if you think it's polite yes or rude no, if those are your only two options, people do a lot more polite yeses because they think rude no, that hurts relationships, it might damage my career opportunities and, and all of that. And, and when you discover, well, no, there's negotiation and that life is a negotiation and that you, that you are negotiating even when you've just been limited in negotiation thinking you've only got two options where you have many, many options and, and, and you can start developing skills. In fact, this conversation is making me think of something I'm looking at right now. But I, 
um, I was trying to persuade my daughter uh, to read a, a book. Uh, she's read so much. She's read a lot, uh, you know, a lot more than I had at her age. I mean, she's probably read a couple of hundred books and she's a teenager now. And But I was, I, I suddenly was like the, uh, the, the manager who suddenly has, well, I've got this uh, you know, shiny new object. You should do this. Read this book today. And I was trying to use my, my persuasion you know, skills to do it. And she was pushing back, not rudely, but she was pushing back. And then I came into the office and she, she wrote a note and she slipped it under my door and I want to read it to you. Okay, I found it. So here's what she wrote. I already expressed my unwillingness to read this book, but I'm willing to make a counter offer. I'm not willing to read it all in one day today, but I'd be willing and happy to explore the possibility of reading it in the future over the course of a few weeks. I believe it would be best to wait till the end of my literature assignment. If you would like me to read this book in place of a separate assignment and over the course of a few weeks, I'm sure that can be made possible. It's gonna be quite the negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and that, of course, to me at least, was a, a terrific moment because Aww. it meant that she had the awareness that she could choose, uh, that she didn't, it, that life wasn't just a take it or leave it scenario, uh, that, that everything is a negotiation. You have a choice uh, and, and you can, and you can neg negotiate your way through life. So this is only one element of of how re-enthroning uh, choice in your life matters, but I still think it's a it's it's an important part of it because uh, because if people say, well, I can't do it. Yes, I'd love to do focus on my health, but I can't for all these reasons and all these people and look at work and look at family, and and what they're saying is, well, I'm at, at some level I cannot negotiate trade-offs. Uh, I, I, I can't have these conversations. I can't make trade-offs with myself uh, as well. And, and to remember and then to develop skills to be able to negotiate, I think is materially helpful. Mm. And I think it's really important too, as a parent to teach your children these skills instead of just providing for them, you know, everything you think they want, but actually make them make some tough decisions and have hard conversations early. There'll be much better prepared for this world that <laughs> is not so nice sometimes, but they'll have the skill set to do that and not be afraid to utilize them. I think that's amazing. Yes, that that moves us into um, into one of the themes is a chapter in in the new book in Effortless, uh, specifically about making failure cheaper. Mm. You know, we, because we live in a VUCA world, you know, a volatile, uncertain. Uh, complex, um, ambiguous world, because that's the reality that most of us are in most of the time. The only way to make progress is is to repeatedly fail. Like there's 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 no other way to to learn. There's no other way to progress. Uh, and and so because that's true, what you want is is not, of course, to fail in massive catastrophic ways. You want to fail cheaply. As cheaply as possible. And one thing that, that we did with our children, we'd, uh, Anna and I had read a, um, this, this idea in a, in, um, in a book 
I'm trying to remember uh, the name of it, but um, we decided to implement this with our children. We thought we don't want our children to make the first financial trade-offs in their lives once they're 35 years old and they buy a house they can't afford, they go into some silly debt somehow and they just ruin 10, 20 years of their lives. Like you don't want that to be the first time someone learns. And so uh, previously we'd said, okay, well, we, we, we probably won't give an allowance to children. But after reading this and learning about it, we thought, well, well, actually we want to give them a small allowance early so that they make mistakes with it. Mm. So while it's inexpensive, so it, it looked like this, we, they would get their allowance and they had to divide it into three actual glass jars. Uh, one was charity, uh, one was savings and one was spend. Uh, and they could choose how much they put in, uh, in these jars pretty much. Uh, and, and I remember one of my children uh, spent it on this, uh, this car that could you know, at least promise to be able to drive on the ceiling. And, uh, and, and, you know, it sounded so exciting and he, he did that and that didn't really work very well. And, and he really regretted having spent, I think, 20 or $40 on this. Uh, and, and, and instead what he'd wanted was to save up for this great Lego system. Uh, and, uh, and, and so he felt the pain of that moment. Yeah. Now, that's a manageable pain. That's a, that's a, that's a good level of pain to have. He, he did then after that become much more careful about how he spent money so that he could and did successfully save up for that Lego set. And, and that to me is, is a concrete example of what we're talking about. You want to be able to fail, but you want to be able to fail as cheaply as possible so that you can make progress. I think that's brilliant. I love how kids teach us things. <laughs> and you speak about that in your book, but the, the lessons learned too is just that there's reward and was that reward worth the pain of, of giving something else up? And so you're allowing them in the safe space to learn those lessons that are gonna hopefully save them from more pain in the future. I think that's a brilliant way to move forward with your kids. And I think it, it reinforces something that's underlying our conversation today, which is, which is to make, you know, if somebody says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to I want to do something about my health, right? And, and if they're listening to you on a regular basis, this is, they're, they're, they're making an investment already in this. They're, they're here for that. And, and one of the things that I would say that's consistent with this idea of, of the right amount of risk and making failure cheap and so on is, is to be careful when setting health goals to, to make them, um, to avoid the trap of boom and bust mm. you know, health implementations mm-hmm. where you're highly motivated and you go big and then barely the second you've begun, you've overdone it. Mm-hmm. So then you just bust out for a while and you're just like, oh, this is too much. Mm-hmm. And then you then there's weeks and months of cycle and there's psychological pain associated with that too, because you start to feel because you've tried for so long to do a thing and failed, you believe one of two things, either, well, I have no willpower, I must be weak, inherently mm-hmm. fixed in some way, or this must be so hard, I can't do it. And either of those 
reinforces a boom and bust cycle because then you you can't get moving until you have something that's so big that you go well maybe this will work or maybe if i commit so much money to this or i do something and it, you you think it has to be big or go home i mean we're literally taught that sort of thing right. so what i would what i would advocate is is to create a sustainable effortless pace and to do that you want to have a lower bound but also an upper bound. So you say, okay, like, for example, I picked up swimming again a few months ago. I hadn't done it since the before the pandemic because, well, they closed the community pool for a start. And so once it was back open again, I said, I want to go back. I had the last time I'd swam, I'd probably swam, I think, 100 lengths or 120 lengths, so quite a lot. Um, and, and I thought, well, I could probably do that day one, but if I do it, I'm going to feel like throwing up. I'm going to, and I'm going to, that'll be the last I want to do for at least that week or maybe for weeks, you know, because it's unpleasant. And I say, okay, what's my lower bound is going to swim. My upper bound is 40 lengths. I'm not going to do more than 40, even if I feel like it. And, and day one, that was fairly easy because I didn't really feel like doing more than 40 day one. But day two, three, four, five, ten, 10, I did start to feel like doing more, but I still held back had the upper bound so that I would still be hungry to keep going. And now it's increased and I do more now, but at first you maintain this upper bound so that you can continue doing something uh, that, uh, that, you know, that otherwise could, could burn you out even though your motives were good. There is so much absolute truth there because with patients, they usually come to us in a state of despair. Um, there's no hope. And I, I always say, you know, physicians should be prescribers of hope. We really need to give space to our patients to explore what does it mean to be successful for themselves? How can they reach their goals? What are their goals? And then help them break it down into those incremental steps, you know, building those tiny moments in your life of success and celebration. And this goes back, I've been a doctor for 20 some odd years. And I had a patient once who was overweight, diabetic, all sorts of issues. And I said, you know, let's just start with one thing. Can you tell me when you can walk to the end of your driveway and back? And she's like, well, I can do that. And I was like, okay, when can you do it? And, you know, we set it up and I said, now I need you to promise me. We even did a pinky promise. It's so funny. I'm like, I really did this with a patient. And what was amazing over the course of months, she started with this simple walk to the end of her driveway. And when she got home from work and back, and then before you know it, she's walking around the block. And then before you know it, she's lost 60 pounds, reversed her diabetes, and is a completely different person. And it was just, you know, giving her the, to understand that there is a different future by seeing there's a hopeful future. And I think that's, sometimes where doctors need to come in to the lives of a patient and not be the prescriber and the patriarchal, you know, <laughs> the way we were trained, but just sitting with the patient and helping them navigate and seeing the potentials and the possibilities. And I think that's, that's really true um, in so many parts of our lives that we can all do. What, some, a piece of research that I loved um, in, in writing effortless was, uh, was a story of a physically, well, actually impossible mission. And it was the mission to get to the South Pole. Mm. Um, I think it's a good metaphor for what you're describing for somebody who's, who's you know, obese or overweight or just not where they want to be. Somebody's struggling with some uh, health factor that, on, that 
actually logically they can do something about, but they really feel psychologically they can't. This, I think, fits as a as, as, a, as a good metaphor. I mean, the, the no one in the, hi the history of the world had ever been to the South Pole. It had never been achieved, not by, uh, you know, not by the British Empire and all its prowess, not in, not by the, uh, the Norwegian civilization for thousands of years. I mean, no one had ever got there. And at the time, the great era of exploration, it was like the moonshot of its time. And it really had grabbed people's imagination. Who will do it? Can it ever be done? And then in, in the midst of this, you have two teams, one from Norway, one from Great Britain, who are in a race for the poles. They're rivals and they set off on almost the same day. What's amazing is that the way they approached that impossible task was really different. The first team, Captain Scott, uh, he, he said, okay, on the good day, I'm going to push my, our team to the absolute limits. Uh, and so on good weather days, they would go just as far as they possibly could. So then when the bad weather day came, they would be exhausted and so they would stay in their tents. They sort of hunker down in it. They, they didn't feel like they could make any progress and they became very negative too psychologically. He, we know because he wrote it in his journal. Uh, oh, we've had the worst weather of anyone who's ever tried this expedition. Our luck is against us. But actually, that, none of that was true. It was actually uh, true that, that they had slightly better weather than the team that had gone before them, that they were actually comparing themselves to. Uh, and and reasonably better than, than than others that had tried it before. And regardless of that, when he wrote in his journal, he said, oh, I, I couldn't imagine anyone being able to make progress in this weather. Uh, well, one team could, and that was the Norwegian team, because they took a different approach. Uh, the, the, the last, um, the, you know, they, they had a rule, um, which was uh, the, 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 the leader of that expedition was called, the, was nicknamed the last Viking. And he had made up a rule at the beginning. He said, we're going to go 15 miles a day. Uh, on the really great weather days when we could go far further, we're going to go 15. On the days that had terrible weather, we're going to go as close as we can to 15. And that's our pace every single day. And that's what they did. And it, the plot thickens where they got within 45 miles of the South Pole. The Norwegian team does not know where the British team is. For all they know, they're ahead of them. And to, to, to make it even more complicated, you've got... Uh, perfect weather conditions. They could achieve the goal within one huge, big final day push. What will they do? Uh, they took three days to do it. They averaged 15 miles a day for the remaining three days. They arrived 30 days, a little more than 30 days sooner than the British team. So they achieved the goal first. They, it's, they seriously much faster than the boom and burst approach of their competitors. But then there's a far more you know, important part of the story even than that, which is the British team, when they arrived, were so exhausted, so demoralized, they never made it out. They, they all died, froze to death on the way home, whereas the Norwegian team uh, you know, went back and uh, you know, successfully made that massive journey back home to Norway. That, to me, is such a fitting description. What is unbelievable to me is when I was reading a, a, a biographer's account uh, brilliant, uh, the, 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 the Rivals for the Poles, I think is the name of the book. It's brilliantly written in it. I'm reading this and I come across this phrase. He said, the Norwegian team achieved their goal. And now here's the phrase, 
without particular effort. Mm. Think of how absurd that sounds. Mm. It, was the, it was the most challenging physical goal of endurance that anybody could actually imagine. It was utterly impossible physically to do it. No one had ever done it. And they achieved it without particular effort. Mm-hmm. Of course, there was effort. I mean, I don't think anyone can imagine there was literally oh, no effort. But, but, but what a description, what it says about the power of that steadiness. Mm-hmm. And, and so that when we say, well, health is essential, we want to protect the asset, we want to do something about the current state of our asset, the, 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 it's so important to put together with that, this other, the, bridge it to this other complementary idea, which is that, that doing what's essential doesn't have to be relentlessly hard. It doesn't have to come with a pound, you know, a pound of flesh. It, it, that, that there is, that there is a, a sustainable way, a sustainable pace to achieve your goals. And you want to build a system that encourages that sustainability. Uh, because what you want is not a moment, not a day's worth of, of alignment to what you're trying to do, not a week. You want to be able to do it for 10 years, 20 years, a, a lifelong uh, success. Mm-hmm. And so upper bounds, lower bounds are a key part of achieving that. Mm-hmm. No, that's a, <laughs> this, yes, I, I love that story. It's a fascinating story of just human achievement alone, much less just the lessons learned of this continual consistency. It's almost like compounding interest. You just keep steady, keep doing the same thing over and over. And that's one of the things I do see with patients is they really struggle with even knowing how to start or where to start, but we just, it's, they have to put a little work into building the systems, like you said, but then it becomes so much easier that the systems kind of just take care of themselves. And that's kind of how you're building those newer habits. And so, um, I agree 100%. Um, and I also know we're coming up to the top of the hour, which I promised I would stay within. So um, I do want to say thank you again so much for your wisdom and writing these books. I feel like I could talk to you for some time. Um, is there any final advice that, you know, of course, we'll have, you know, links for everyone to find um, Greg's information and in his books and his podcast, which is excellent as well. Um, any final advice you would give to someone who's maybe looking to making, you know, health effortless or some part of their life that may be difficult or essential. I mean, what what do you find that most people really resonate with as far as that one nugget they can take away from this conversation? I have a counterintuitive answer to your question, which is I think that the the one thing people can do um, is is to listen deeply. Hmm. Uh, that is to listen deeply first. To you know, to their own to inside intra intra personal deep listening, where you know whether it's um, another terrific book worth reading is called um, the you know the body keeps score. Whether from that point of view, or there's lots of ways we could look at it. Uh, we have more answers about what to do and what not to do within us right now than we often hear because we're so consumed with other voices, uh, voices of 
oh, you should do this, you could do that, you, you have to do the other things, you know, external voices, opinions, we're in it, not just information overload, but opinion overload, there's all this external noise. And then there's all the noise inside of us too, that there's lots of clamoring for what a friend of mine, um, an economist in England calls the scared voice. And he distinguishes that from the sacred voice. He says, you've got to get below the noise to listen uh, to, to what, you know, what you, it's like you, what you already know. Uh, and, and I think that that's what I would encourage people uh, to do is to, it's just to, even as they've been listening to this conversation, it's not so much what I've said or what you've said, but like something within themselves, what are they hearing? And to, to trust that uh, I came across recently a, a great reference that Socrates uh, was once described uh, by member of the royal family at the time as, as um, the wisest man in the world. And he said, well, if I have been or I am the wisest man in the world, it's because I've had a demon who, always, who I always listen to. And my demon tells me what not to do. Hmm. And, and it never tells me what to do, but what not to do. And as I listened to that, it, that's what kept him from doing all sorts of things in his professional career that he could have done and why he spent his time as a teacher and and he made these trade-offs that he made and and in a similar way that's what i would say that that whatever the external problem is whether it's health or whether it's relationships or whether it's the business underneath it there's something inside something quieter will tell you what not to do as you make as you as you go forward and and i think that that is that is really what essentialism and effortless and the research I'm currently doing is, is really about. Hmm. I think that's beautiful. It's uh, turning into your intuition and listening to that inner voice. And I always tell my kids that is like, if your gut is telling you something, you need to listen. There's, there's forces in this universe. We don't understand that you need to tune into. So I, I think that's a, an excellent way to perceive it. So thank you again, Greg, so much for your time. And um, everyone, please check out his books, Essentialism and Effortless. I do believe they're life-changing. And uh, again, Greg, thank you for writing them. Laura, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go, though, please hit the subscribe button and the alert button so you will be notified whenever we upload any new videos. On Monday, we upload the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find it on all the major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. Now, if you're looking for more resources on how to start a plant-based diet, sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, anything regarding wellness, we've got you covered. Check out HealthyHumanRevolution.com. And again, thanks for watching.